We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Welcome to another episode of Medicalization, a podcast miniseries that dives into some of the most peculiar and fascinating stories of the history of medicine. Some figures made it their mission to etch their names into history. Others found themselves thrust into it. Either way, their contributions have made medicine what it is today. I'm your host, Wafiq Sedholm. And I'm your host, Jessica Sedholm. In today's episode, we look at a courageous woman who trusted in basic scientific principles despite the backlash she received as both a woman and a scientist. Her stance against Big Pharma ultimately prevented a mass epidemic in the U.S. This is the story of Frances Oldham Kelsey. Episode 3, The Drug Detective. My name is Dr. Francis Oldham Kelsey. What I'm about to recount is a true story, even though I wish it weren't. These were wild times, and someone with grit and vigor was needed to clean these streets. There were a lot of shady characters in the business, and I was just the woman to get the job done. I got a lot of kicks from finding false reports and botched research and stopping the crooks right in their tracks. I did it for the kids, the ones who didn't have a choice. I was their voice, and I stopped for nothing. Ah. Dr. Joseph Murray, just the man I wanted to see. So you're the one they call the drug detective, is that right, Dr. Francis Kelsey? Yeah, what's it to ya? You know, I'm getting real sick of you not approving these new drug agreement. You know, this was supposed to be easy, and now thanks to you, we're losing money by the day. Will you call this evidence? This is a pathetic excuse for scientific research. No, this is your last warning. You better get this done. Uh, Give me something worth reading, and maybe I'll approve your precious drug. Until then, I'm not budging, you hear? Remember in the 1950s when prenatal health included some vitamins and a pack of doctor-prescribed, unfiltered cigarettes? Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. Yes, in a cigarette, it's the tobacco that counts. And Lucky Well, thankfully, the Food and Drug Administration now has countless rules regulating what substances women should and shouldn't consume during pregnancy. But it wasn't that long ago when medicine was dictated by shoddy research and coerced testimonials, fueled more by advertising than actual evidence-based medicine. Yeah. Plenty of Don Draper types selling pharmaceuticals unregulated back then. One of many we want to talk about today. That was Distaval, which was marketed as a cure-all drug. Starting around 1959, advertisements for the drug littered prominent medical publications, including the British Medical Journal. 
safe sedation and sounder sleep. This child's life may depend on the safety of Distaval. Their campaigns claimed that Distaval had no negative side effects, restored the natural pattern of sleep, and was safe for people of all ages. You see, the preferred sedative at the time was a class of drugs called barbiturates, which, when taken in excess, can cause respiratory depression and cardiac arrest. Distaval was an enticing new option to mothers who are afraid of their children getting into the medicine cabinet, or caretakers of the elderly who feared that their loved one may go to sleep and simply never wake up. One of the most appealing effects of the drug was its anti-nausea properties, targeted specifically for pregnant women. The Distillers Company, the primary licensee of Distaval in the United Kingdom, Australia, and New Zealand, marketed the drug so well that it began to sweep across Europe. It became such a cash cow for the company that they decided to try and market it in the U.S. as well. They settled on the distribution company William S. Merrill, which was determined to make the drug widely accessible in the States. But for that to happen, they needed approval from the Food and Drug Administration, or the FDA, and in 1960, they filed their first request. The process was supposed to be seamless, since there was already proof of concept in Europe, and it likely would have been if it hadn't landed on the desk of FDA's newest drug evaluator, a woman by the name of Frances Oldham Kelsey. Having obtained a PhD in pharmacology from the University of Chicago in 1938, followed by an MD in 1950, Dr. Kelsey had found herself dexed at the FDA. An unusual position for a woman at the time, her job was to inspect the evidence given for new drugs in the U.S. and subsequently approve or deny them. She had only been working at the FDA for about a month when Distaval tried to break into U.S. markets. I came on the 1st of August 1960, and I think I got the application in early September 1960. I believe it was the second one that was given to me. I was the newest person there, and pretty green, so my supervisors decided, well, this is a very easy one. There'll be no problems with sleeping pills. So this is how I happened to get the application. It was considered a softball for a routine approval, since the drug was flying off the shelves just over the Atlantic. But as Kelsey peeled through the evidence that the Merrill Company presented, she began to be alarmed. The application was reviewed by three people, a chemist, a pharmacologist for the animal work, and a medical officer, which, of course, was myself. All three of us found problems reviewing the drug the first time around. The chemist review showed that there were some matters that had to be cleared up. The studies were not properly structured, and a wealth of crucial information was missing. The claims made in the new drug agreement were too glowing for the support in the way of clinical backup. I cannot remember what the exact number of doctors' reports in the initial submission was. I think it was about 30, and many of them were more testimonials than scientific studies. There were no studies about the absorption and the elimination of the drug in the body, for example. The long-term effects of the drug were not followed for a long enough time. The effects of the drug on pregnant women were not adequately assessed. Merrill, the drug company, did not know of any problems with the drug in pregnancy, but they had not conducted a study, except for one, using it in late pregnancy in order that the mother might be more comfortable, which we did not feel was sufficient. When you give a drug to a pregnant woman, you are exposing, in fact, two people to the drug, the mother and the child. With red flags popping up everywhere, she denied approval and requested more information. 
They replied by giving her more quote-unquote studies, which were largely based on testimonials rather than properly designed experiments. And she denied them again. By this point, the company and its representing physician, Dr. Joseph Murray, were quickly becoming irritated. Murray began contacting her and complaining to members of the FDA that the drug should be approved and Dr. Kelsey was unnecessarily delaying the drug. Dr. Joseph Murray was the contact man from Merrill. His background was in bacteriology. He was a bacteriologist, not an MD. <laughs> I think he was quite frustrated, to put it mildly, by the problems raised in the review. I suppose he had been given the responsibility of getting the new drug approval approved as quickly as possible. And to have these roadblocks thrown up must have been quite annoying. Christmas was right around the corner, and the company would stand to gain a sizable fortune if it could be approved in time for the holidays. But she was steadfast in her resilience, and without the adequate scientific evidence, she would not budge. Little did she know how important this would be. As the Merrill Company continued to push Dr. Kelsey and the FDA, reports began emerging in Europe that were pretty disturbing. There was an unusual increase in the number of babies being born with abnormal limbs. Some would have small or absent limbs, while others had fingers and toes growing directly out of their abdomen. And although varying presentations of the limbs were seen, they were all classified as generally the same disorder, phocomalia. The Latin term literally translates to seal limbs, a gruesome moniker that defined the characteristic appendages of these newborns. Depending on the severity, some children would also have often eye, ear, or organ deformities. Many of the infants ended up dying shortly after birth. One particular testimonial from 1962 tells the story of a father who was brought into the delivery room only to find his newborn daughter missing her arms. In their place hung remnants of elbows, wrists, and fingers. He nearly fainted from the sight and cried out, Surely you're not going to allow a child in this state to live. The staff and doctors alike were completely bewildered. The shame, ostracism, and regret felt by these patients, their families, and the medical community created irreparable damage to people's trust in physicians and the government. By 1961, a German pediatrician by the name of Wittgen Lenz had established the cause of phocomalia to be the ever-so-safe drug Distival through interviewing patients of his who had given birth to a child with a condition. The generic name of Distival is thalidomide, and thalidomide became infamous overnight. Lenz's experiment, in addition to the other doctor's findings, alerted the public to the dangers of the drug. We got reinforcement of our belief that it was the drug that caused deformities from Dr. Helen Tausig, a renowned woman pediatric cardiologist at the Johns Hopkins University. Her specialty was pediatric heart defects, and the German physician wrote to her that many of these children had cardiac defects and that she should come to Germany and look them over. She came back with striking photographs after having talked to everyone over there. By 1962, the Merrill Company withdrew its request for approval. Thalidomide was no more. Dr. Murray, of Merrill, informed the FDA that the German firm was withdrawing the drug from the market. 
I remember very well when he called and told us about information they had received from Germany, possibly linking the drug with birth defects. I was, I admit it, very surprised. This was what we had been wanting to make sure would not happen with the drug, and it appeared it had. But by this point, serious damage had already been done. Conservative estimates put 10,000 people in 46 different countries as having been born with phocomalia and other abnormalities as a result of the thalidomide use during pregnancy. But the casualties of thalidomide in the United States? Only 17 people. The babies affected in the U.S. had received thalidomide because the Merrill Company distributed small quantities for experimental purposes or because the mothers had traveled to Europe and received the drug while they were there. By all accounts, Francis Kelsey's refusal of the drug patent avoided an all-out catastrophe in the states, saving thousands of lives from disability, deformity, and even death. She was labeled a heroine, and rightfully so, and dubbed the drug detective. Her story was printed on newspapers around the country. Her ability to resist the pressures of big pharmaceutical companies and insist on evidence-based medical practice not only saved children from a dangerous poison, it changed the way that governments study and regulate drugs to date. The President's press conference from the new State Department Auditorium in Washington, D.C., August 1st, 1962. Afternoon. I have several announcements. Recent events in this country and abroad concerning the effects of a new sedative called thalidomide emphasize again the urgency of providing additional protection to American consumers from harmful or worthless drug products. The United States has the best and the most effective food and drug law of any country in the world. And the alert work of our Food and Drug Administration, and particularly Dr. Francis Kelsey, prevented this particular drug from being distributed commercially in this country. Nevertheless, the drug was given to many patients on an investigational basis. We are reviewing what steps can be taken administratively to make this stage in the future less dangerous. As a result of the thalidomide crisis, the Kefauver-Harris Amendment to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act was passed in 1962. This amendment firmly established the need for more rigorous regulation and the study of drugs on the market, as well as the prohibition of false or exaggerated claims of efficacy and safety. With the passage of this amendment, drugs now had to be proven effective as well as safe. And it is clear that to prevent even more serious disasters from occurring in this country in the future, additional legislative safeguards are necessary. The bill reported by the Senate Judiciary Committee on July 19th, while embodying many of the recommendations contained in the message of March of this year, does not go far enough. As Senator Kefauver and others have pointed out in their supplementary review on the committee report. The administration bill, for example, unlike the Senate Judiciary Bill, will allow for immediate removal from the market of a new drug where there is an immediate hazard to public health, which cannot be done now. Many drugs were instantly pulled from the markets because of these new stipulations. It also required informed consent for patients enrolling in clinical trials. 
It's kind of hard to believe that these concepts were so foreign to medicine as recently as the 60s. I think it's that time, Jesse. Uh oh. It's time to learn the science behind some of our favorite stories. Off to the Synaptic Center! Now that we've heard Dr. Kelsey's incredible narrative, we wanted to explain the medicine behind thalidomide's toxicity. To do so, we have to explain how drugs even enter the womb to begin with. The placenta is the main organ responsible for the transfer of nutrients and gases between a mother and the growing fetus. It attaches to the mother's uterus through a complex vascular network and connects to the baby through an umbilical cord. So the baby and the mother are essentially morphed into one circulatory system. Due to this parasitic-like reliance, it is obviously incredibly important to monitor what goes into the pregnant woman's body because, if toxic, it can alter key developmental formation. Dr. Kelsey's research for her PhD actually looked at moving substances along this crucial placental barrier in rabbits, which is why this aspect was so important to her review process. In addition, there was growing anecdotal awareness that certain activities and substances were bad for pregnant women. Only later were these substances collectively named teratogens, of which thalidomide is only one of thousands. Even though thalidomide has been extensively studied, there's still no consensus on its mechanism of teratogenicity. Several methods have been proposed. Theory 1 states that thalidomide interferes with the development of blood vessels, what is formerly known as angiogenesis, preventing the formation of tissue in the first place. Theory 2 says that it may inhibit growth factors, which are tiny chemicals that act like messengers to direct proper growth. Theory 3 involves the formation of radical oxygen species, which are more broadly known as free radicals. These are essentially unstable atoms that, in an effort to become stabilized, initiate a series of chain reactions that can ultimately lead to mass cell death. And the fourth and final proposed mechanism is that the drug itself inhibits the formation of cartilage, which is the initial frame of what will eventually be replaced by bone. Fortunately, scientists have studied thalidomide for other uses, and it turns out it doesn't just cause harm. Thalidomide may have uses in the treatment of leprosy and tuberculosis and other conditions, paving the way to new treatments for a challenging disease process. For her gallant efforts, Frances Oldham Kelsey was awarded the President's Award for Distinguished Federal Civilian Service by John F. Kennedy in 1962, only the second female in history to do so. It was an interesting ceremony in the Rose Garden, and the astronauts were in the background. Maybe it was just John Glenn. I'm not sure. I have pictures somewhere that they provided. My husband and daughters were present. My brothers, Stuart and John, and my niece Nancy came from the West Coast. She continued to fight against unjust drug companies with the FDA until she retired at the ripe old age of 90. But she continued to receive rewards and recognition until her death at 101 years old. The Thalidomide Saga has taught the scientific community the value of clear, well-designed studies that cannot be influenced by money, power, or pressure. Evidence-based medicine guides healthcare providers 
to optimal care by using established recommendations based on real, reproducible data. The best physician is the one who is up to date on not only clinical knowledge, but research as it is actively published. If there is one thing we can learn about Dr. Francis Oldham Kelsey, it is that unwavering adherence to simple scientific principles can have impact far greater than we could ever imagine. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Medicalization. If you'd like to learn more about a story, go to medicalizationpodcast.com for some further reading. Please make sure to follow us on iTunes, Spotify, and or SoundCloud and give us a review. You don't have to give us a review, but sharing with your friends and writing a review are the best ways to help us out. We'll see you next time for another look into the medical history vault with Jess and Wafiq. Until then, toodaloo. We'd like to thank Erica Torvik for her role as Francis Oldham Kelsey, the drug detective, as well as Nate Ziley for his work as Dr. Joseph Murray. This is a test of the emergency alert system. But Dr. Kelsey would prove otherwise. I don't know why. Hey, I am the way that I am. You're close. And they're also an alcohol company, because when you specialize in one depressant, you might as well give them all. Do you not like that? No, I think it's not. Okay. Um, I think it's a little forced, (laughs) but whatever. (laughs) Well, they're an alcohol company. You gotta do all the depressants, okay? Remember in the 1950s when prenatal health basically was a couple of vitamins and a pack of Marlboro Reds? (laughs) <laughs> hey, that's what we did last time. I laughed. It was funny. Now, back to our show.